Well, CATSCAN. CATSCAN is an acronym for Computerized Axial Tomography. A CAT scan is a non-invasive diagnostic tool used by doctors to examine a patient's medical condition. The technology is sometimes called a CT scan. Well, I have a picture uh, this morning of a CAT scan. Whoops. Wrong slide. Uh, Here's a CAT scan. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Here's a cat scanning the neighborhood. Two cats scanning the neighborhood. How about a scan of a cat? Maybe that'll do it. Well, what about a cat on a scanner? Or or maybe a cat under the lid of a scanner? Or maybe a cat under the glass of the scanner? Attention, no cats were harmed in the creation of these pictures. Here's a woman going in for a CAT scan. Turned out to be a lab report. (laughs) How about a cat in a CAT scan? Isn't that interesting? We're getting closer here. Here it is. A real computerized axial tomographer, a CAT scan. And here's how one of these CAT scans works. It's a sophisticated x-ray that rotates around your body and it sends out multiple beams of radiation. The scanner photographically dissects your body into thin slices that the computer software then reassembles into detailed cross-sections of you. A CT scan gives a doctor a multidimensional view of a patient's insides. These are quick ways to examine your chest cavity or your abdomen or your pelvic area. CAT scans are used to detect a wide range of ailments and injuries. And there is a section of scripture that I think of as spiritual CAT scans. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are commonly called the Minor Prophets. In these books, God puts the patient on a gurney. A nation like Israel or Judah or Edom or Assyria. And he slides the nation into the x-ray tube. He rotates around them, photographing slices of what's going on under the surface in their national life. Assembling a picture in a diagnosis. You see, on the surface of the nation, there's buying and selling. Kids go to school or folks head to work. There are weddings and births and celebrations and graduations all taking place. In most cases, it's business as usual. But God lets the prophets see what's going on inside, under the surface of people's lives. And in many cases, there are spiritual concerns. There are cancers growing. There are hidden malignancies that would have gone undetected without the scan. You see, these prophecies are God's attempt to save people's lives. Well, so far we've studied seven of the minor prophets. Today we tackle Zephaniah. And if we have ears to hear, these ancient CAT scans will diagnose our problems and put us on the road to spiritual health. 
Well, of all the minor prophets, Zephaniah gives us the most detail about his background and his pedigree. Beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now this Josiah reigned 31 years, from 641 B.C. to 609 B.C. He was the last of the godly kings to sit on the throne of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Josiah launched a great spiritual revival. You remember, Josiah started out as the boy king. He took the throne when he was just eight years old. Imagine our country being ruled by a third grader. Hear ye, hear ye, video games for everyone. Ice cream throughout the land. Healthcare reform would consist of chewable vitamins. Actually, 2 Chronicles 34 verse 3 says of Josiah, In the eighth year of the reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. If you're a teenager today, you guys up in the, in the upper deck, Pay attention to these words. While he was still young, Josiah's eighth year would have made him 16 years old. The age that a lot of adolescents start bucking authority and sowing their wild oats. When most kids rebel, Josiah chose to get serious about God. Hey, why waste the best years of your life on sin and reckless living? Give God the prime of your life. Hey, be a prime time Christian. You know, if you're still young, serve the Lord. Here's what happens. Ask your parents. A lot of teenagers, they sow their wild oats in their teen years. But then they spend their 20s and their 30s pulling weeds. They have to live through the pain. And they have to try to straighten out the consequences of their sins and their mistakes. It is so much better to sow good seed and enjoy an early harvest of success. Now it's probable Zephaniah was an influence in the early life of Josiah. Perhaps his ministry even paved the way for Josiah's revival. Zephaniah's prophecy warns Judah of God's judgment. And the immediate threat was the Babylonian Empire spreading westward across the Fertile Crescent. Judah needed to repent and turn to God or face judgment. Sadly, Josiah's revival didn't last. After the king died, Judah resumed their wicked ways and the dire warnings of Zephaniah came to pass. Notice in verse 1, Zephaniah tracks back in his genealogy to the fourth generation. And there are different ideas as to what his motive was for this family tree. One theory is that Zephaniah was born into the royal family. He was the great-great-grandson of the godly king Hezekiah. This would have made the prophet Zephaniah a cousin of King Josiah. Yet if this was the prophet's purpose, why doesn't he just come out and call Hezekiah king like he does Josiah? On the other hand, Zephaniah's ancestor could have been a different Hezekiah altogether. 
I like a theory advanced by Walter Kaiser in his commentary on the book of Zephaniah. He brings up an interesting idea. Zephaniah's father was named Cushai. And Cush was the Hebrew name for the country of Ethiopia. It's possible that Zephaniah was a black man from Ethiopia. To this day, there is a large contingency of black Jews living in Ethiopia. For centuries, these Jews were cut off from the rest of the world. In the 18th century AD, explorer James Bruce found a tribe of these black Jews living along the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. The tribe called themselves Beta Israel, or House of Israel. Today, Israelis call them Falasha, which means foreigner. It's a derogatory term. If you meet one of these black Jews, don't call him Falasha. Falasha, say he's from the Beta Israel. It's interesting, upon initial contact with the the outsiders, the Ethiopian Jews were surprised that all Jews weren't black-skinned. Actually, their form of Judaism is closer to biblical Judaism than that of white European Jews. They lack the rabbinical traditions of European Judaism. In fact, they have no rabbis. Their leaders are priests who claim to be descendants from Aaron. As to their origins, we're we're not quite sure. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, you remember, preached the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, maybe like this guy, indicating that there were black Jews in the first century A.D. Solomon had married a thousand women. Imagine that, guys, a thousand wives. How would you ever get any bathroom time? A thousand women. And you would think that there would be an Ethiopian princess in his harem. Maybe her offspring returned home to Ethiopia. Some Bible scholars suggest that the Ethiopian Jews are descendants of Moses and his Ethiopian wife. You remember, he took an Ethiopian as a wife. Obviously, she was a black-skinned woman. Numbers chapter 12 recounts the story. Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, they opposed the marriage between their brother and their new sister-in-law. They were against interracial marriage, so they tried to fire Moses. It's interesting, it didn't take God long to settle the the argument. Numbers 12 verse 9 tells us, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. God struck her with the dreaded flesh-eating disease of the ancient world, leprosy. Apparently, Miriam had a problem with the color of the woman's skin. Now she's got a problem with her own skin. And its pigment is the least of her worries. Who cares about the shade of a person's skin when it's rotten off the bone? She drops her petty distinctions and her superficiality. And she accepts Moses' marriage to the Ethiopian woman. And this is why the Bible says nothing to prohibit interracial marriage. In fact, God is working to overcome racial distinctions. In Christ, there is neither black nor white, Jew nor Gentile. Today, the only real distinction that God sees between people is whether they're in Christ or outside of Christ. This is why a believer should never marry a non-believer, but that's 
spiritual. That has nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. You know, it's almost humorous. After Miriam was struck with leprosy, it didn't take long for Aaron to change his opinion. Oh, Aaron, he knew he was next. And so he pleaded with Moses, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. And let me say this clearly. Prejudice against another person's shade is shady and it's sinful. And if you harbor just a little of it, then you need to repent. It's interesting, even in the law, God demonstrated His desire to bridge these racial divides. In Egypt, there were interracial marriages between Egyptians and Hebrews. And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 8, Moses instructs his people not to hate the Egyptians. Instead, he makes a way to turn them into Israelis. He says, the children of the third generation born to them enter the congregation of the Lord. Third generation offspring became full Israeli citizens. Perhaps this is why Zephaniah lists his genealogy to the fourth generation. To prove beyond a shadow of a doubt his Jewish identity. Regardless of the color of his skin, he certainly delivers a colorful message as you'll see. The prophecy of Zephaniah begins with a bang. Verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. The stumbling blocks were the idols. Israel had stumbled, had tripped up over the worship of false gods. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Bible commentator J. Vernon McGee writes, The book of Zephaniah is like a Florida hurricane, a Texas tornado, a Mississippi River flood, a Minnesota snowstorm, and a California earthquake all rolled into one. Starts out with a bang. Zephaniah served a God who is serious about sin, who doesn't mince words, who isn't afraid to judge evil, and who holds nations accountable. As you well know, this past week, an earthquake rocked the city of Port-au-Prince and the island nation of Haiti. Thousands of people have died. I love the Haitians. I've been to the country many times now doing mission work, and I plan to help out in this current crisis. I've been in prayer for the people of Haiti. And I would never put words in God's mouth and conclude that this killer quake was His judgment unless He revealed that to me specifically. But neither would I ignore or automatically exclude the possibility. Hey, don't ignore the fact that Haiti is a nation rife with voodoo. Corruption there runs rampant. In times past, God judged His own people, Judah and Israel. So what makes us think He wouldn't judge Haiti? For that matter, what makes us think He wouldn't judge America for our selfishness and our secularism? 
You see, Zephaniah teaches that there is not a country on earth immune from God's judgment. All people should court God's favor and fear God's wrath. Well, verse 4 warns us of God's displeasure with Judah's idolatrous flirtations. Zephaniah speaks for God. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Baal was the primary Canaanite idol. And he'll cut off the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. This Hebrew word translated idolatrous is chimarim. And it means, literally, black ones. Zephaniah could be rebuking a heresy that had started among his fellow Ethiopians, that black priests were perpetrating this idolatry. He also rebukes those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, Jews who were charting the stars from their rooftop. I hope you understand this. These psychic consultations and checking your horoscope and palm readers, this is sinful. And these are practices prohibited by God. You see, the Bible considers it a sin to seek any supernatural insight from any other source than God in His Word. I mean, turn to a psychic and what are you saying? You're inferring that God doesn't love you enough to tell you all you need to know. God considers it a betrayal, an insult to Him. God also rebukes them. He says, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord but who also swear by Milcom. I mean, I mean, they would do, take an oath to Yahweh, and then they'd turn around and take an oath to Milcom and put the two on the same plane. This word Milcom, or, or you might know this idol as Molech, this was the false god of Israel's neighbors, the Moabites and the Ammonites. The name Molech was derived from Melech, which was the Hebrew word king. You form Molech by taking the three consonants in Melech, the M and the L and the K, and you insert the vowels found in the Hebrew word for shame. Thus, King Molech was forever stigmatized as a shameful thing, and rightly so. Apparently, these black priests in Zephaniah's day had turned to Molech the false god of Moab and Ammon, rather than to the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. And it's sad, but the same mistake is being repeated today by young blacks. The God of Ammon and Moab is now Islam. And some African Americans are turning from the truth of Christianity to become Muslims. The founder of the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, was once named Elijah Poole. He was the son of a Baptist pastor who tried to raise his kids in the Christian faith. The son turned his back on the faith of his fathers and led many astray, including Malcolm X. Islam appeals to oppress minorities because it legitimizes hatred and sanctions violence. The Islamic principle of jihad encourages the use of force and conquest over the opposition, whereas Christianity teaches us to love our enemies. Conversion is always voluntary. 
You see, tomorrow, Americans will celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, father of the modern civil rights movement. Dr. King taught that prejudice can only be overcome through love, by peaceful, nonviolent resistance. The New Testament and Dr. King's teachings are the very opposite of Islam. It's probably just coincidence, but remember the Hebrew word molek is formed by inserting the vowels of the word shame into the consonants of the Hebrew word for king. The equivalent English letters M-L-K. And ironically, this is what has happened in certain quarters of the black community in America. It's sad that Muslim teachings have corrupted the vision of Dr. King and have deceived people into serving the false god of Allah. Interesting stuff here in Zephaniah, wouldn't you say? Zephaniah continues his indictment in verse 6. He sees those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. As he said earlier, you know, you swear your oaths by Yahweh and then you turn around and you swear your oaths by Milcom. In other words, they had put all of these gods on the same plane. Like America today, Israel of old had become pluralistic. All religions were viewed as equal and beneficial. Israel had put the gods of Baal and Milcom on a par with Yahweh. Tolerance was the mantra. The people had come to believe that no one religion had a monopoly on the truth. The only religion outlawed was the one that claimed to be exclusively true. Hey, welcome to our modern world. You see, this is why Christianity is the enemy of pluralism. For the Bible teaches that there is only one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and His Son, Jesus Christ. All others are false and are deceivers. Secular historian Edward Gibbon, he wrote a classic book entitled The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And in his book, he describes the final throes of Rome just before she collapsed. And it sounds like modern times. Gibbon states, The people regarded all religions as equally true. The philosophers regarded all religions as equally false. And the politicians regarded all religions as equally useful. Here's 21st century America. Remember, no nation is ever immune from the judgment of God. God warns in verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good nor will He do evil. What infuriates God most is to be be portrayed as a God who doesn't care, who's just apathetic, who has no standards and doesn't hold people accountable for how they live. That's not the God that we serve at all. Well, Zephaniah writes in verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Seven times the prophet Zephaniah will use this term, the day of the Lord. And it doesn't mean 24 hours. The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God asserts His will into human affairs. You see, today we could call the day of man. I mean, humans are having their say, getting their way. But from time to time, God butts in. God crashes the party. 
You see, when you conceptualize of the day of the Lord, think of both the end of time and from time to time. The Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and Judah was the day of the Lord for people living in Zephaniah's day. In the last days, the day of the Lord is going to include God's invasion of planet earth. Cataclysmic judgments will precede the second coming of Jesus. He'll return to this earth to defeat his enemies, judge the nations, and establish his kingdom. God will have his say in that day. You see, most of the Old Testament prophecies have both an immediate and a future fulfillment. And sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. Here's how God spoke to the Old Testament prophets. Have you ever laid flat of your back under a tall tree and just looked up through the branches? You ever done this? You know, laying on your back like that, it's difficult to see which branches are really on top of of what branches, which ones come first, which ones come second, which ones come third, and then it's almost impossible to judge or measure the distances between those branches. You see it all, but you're not kind of sure of the order, and you're certainly not sure of the distance between them. And this is how it is with God's judgments and prophecies in the Old Testament. Often the prophet saw into the future and he saw events, but he didn't necessarily see which ones came first, nor did he see how far apart they were. He saw the judgments in layers. And this is what's happening in Zephaniah. In verse 10, he mentions a cry from the fish gate and wailing in Jerusalem's second quarter. These were immediate prophecies fulfilled when the Babylonian army breached the walls. But now listen to verses 14 and 15. Here he describes the great day of the Lord. Verse 15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Boy, this sounds more future and more global. I love the promise at the beginning of chapter 2 especially in light of all this judgment. He says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. The Hebrew word translated nation here is goyim, or Gentiles. And either the Jews here are being compared to Gentiles, or they're being encouraged to join together with the Gentiles. And notice they should do so, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So before the day of the Lord, these Jews are encouraged to join with the Gentiles. The New Testament predicts a gathering of Jews and Gentiles just before the final day of the Lord. Jesus will come. And all believers will be gathered together. And where? In the clouds. They'll be taken to heaven. Paul calls this event the rapture. And here it is in the Old Testament, described by Zephaniah in the 7th century B.C. I think that's fascinating. Zephaniah continues, he says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You see, this is the blessed hope that God has given to Christians, those who trust in His Son, That just before these great and grave judgments come down on planet earth, the church will go up 
will be caught up to be with Jesus and hidden from His anger, hidden in the heavens. Verse 3 tells us, we'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And here's a bit of play play on words. The author's name, Zephaniah, literally means, he whom the Lord hides. And here we're promised, trust in Jesus and you'll be hidden from God's anger. In other words, you'll be Zephaniathized. Say that a few times real fast. You'll be Zephaniathized. You'll be hidden from God's anger. God wants to bring judgment, but not on His people. He'll bring judgment on the wicked. You and I will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. We'll be raptured to be with Jesus. Now from verse 5 through the end of chapter 2, the Lord pronounces judgments on Judah's surrounding neighbors. The Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Ethiopians and the Assyrians. And in verse 15, the Assyrians who dwelt in their capital city of Nineveh, they sound like a Coca-Cola ad. Zephaniah tells us, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. You know, before Coke was it, Nineveh said she was it. And yet look at the next line. How has she become a desolation? The Assyrians were a proud people that God saw fit to humble. And how many folks down through the ages have followed suit? They think they're it. You ever met anybody who thought he was it? She thought she was it? Beware. James 4 verse 6 warns us God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God has ways of taking the air out of the arrogant. Chapter 3 opens. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. He's speaking of the once holy city, Jerusalem. Verse 2 is a strong indictment. She has not obeyed His voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. And in the next few verses, he exposes the wickedness of Jerusalem's leaders, their princes and judges and prophets and priests. And after punishing the surrounding nations, God says of Jerusalem in verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. I mean, God had granted Jerusalem amazing privileges. And yet the city had never lived up to them. I hope you remember, with privilege comes responsibility. Teenagers need to learn that. Hey, if you want the privilege, you need to accept the responsibility. But you know, Christians also need to learn that. Those that have been given much, much will be required. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Well, verse 8 almost certainly streaks us ahead to the end of time. God says, My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation. All my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Zephaniah is describing what the New Testament refers to as the final battle. 
the infamous battle of Armageddon, God will rally all the nations of the world together in order to pour out His indignation and to bring judgment on these nations. They'll gather together to fight against Jesus. And guess what? They'll lose. Zephaniah ends with a couple of interesting last day predictions. Notice verse 9. Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. You know, at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages. But when Jesus returns and reigns, He'll reinstitute a universal language that will unite mankind and enable us all to worship God with a single voice. And what will that global language be? Of course, English with a southern accent. Everybody will speak just like me. Yeah. Not really. Actually, some Bible scholars see in verse 9 a promise to restore ancient Hebrew and make it the global language of all mankind. It's interesting, this has already begun. You know, did you know the restoration of the Jewish language in Israel today is nothing short of a modern miracle? Prior to this century, Hebrew had not been spoken since the 6th century B.C., 2,500 years ago, the time of Zephaniah, when the Jews were carried off to Babylon. When they returned to the land, they spoke Aramaic, the language they had picked up in Babylon. Only the scholars spoke Hebrew. Hebrew eventually became a dead language. It wasn't spoken for 1,900 years until the turn of the 20th century. Jews started returning to the land of Israel, and they came back speaking a zillion different languages. Communication was such a problem. And a Jerusalem journalist, a man named Eliezer ben Yehuda, he noticed the problem and he made it his personal mission to revive ancient Hebrew. Today, modern Hebrew contains over 100,000 words. You know, Hebrew today can go into the shrine of the book and read the Dead Sea Scrolls, read Isaiah, and read the same Hebrew that was written by Isaiah, you know, 2,000 years ago. Hebrew is the only dead language in history that's been restored to daily use. An amazing fulfillment of prophecy spoken first by Zephaniah 2,500 years ago. You're reading about it today. Another prophecy, verse 10. He says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Here's Zephaniah, the Ethiopian Jew. He predicted a return of Ethiopians to the land of Israel. Perhaps you have heard of this occurring in recent history. In 1984, Israel launched a covert evacuation called Operation Moses. The military airlifted 8,000 black Jews from war-torn Sudan and relocated them to Israel. It occurred again in 1991. 14,000 more Ethiopians came home. It's amazing that this was predicted by the black prophet Zephaniah 2,500 years ago. Now, to sort of wrap things up, I want to admit, Zephaniah is a hard book. There's judgment in this book. There's God's wrath in this book. Zephaniah's prophecy is right and righteous and rough. And yet, Zephaniah closes with one of the most tender passages in all of the Scriptures. Once the judgment ceases, 
Once a sin is punished, God reveals His incredible love for His people. In fact, they're told to sing and be glad. Verse 15 tells us, chapter 3, verse 15, The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. And check this out. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you know that God sings over you? You moms, you've done this. You've picked up your little baby from the crib and you've rocked that little baby and you've sung songs over that little baby and you've sung and rejoiced and gloried over that little baby that God had given to you. You've done this. You dads have done this. In a dead kind of a way. God sings over His people. This is how God feels about you as a believer in Jesus. This is how He treats you. In Christ, all judgment has ceased. You have the peace of God and peace with God. The penalty for sin has now been paid in full through Jesus Christ. The King is in your midst. He dwells in you. Jesus is mighty to save. And Zephaniah tells us how God treats you. He rejoices over you. Like a doting dad, he watches you sleep. He even sings over you. The thought of you causes God to sing. Reminds me of the Stanley Cup. You know what the Stanley Cup is, don't you? It's the trophy, the silver trophy that looks like the wedding cake that's given to the winner of the National Hockey League playoffs. And when the trophy is awarded to the winning team, what happens? All the players, man, they take their turns holding up this trophy and skating this trophy around the ice. It's obvious the source of their great joy isn't the silver trophy itself. I mean, just watch how they treat it. They toss it around and they maul it with taped up hands and they kiss it and slobber all over it. They're not worried about smudging it up or staining it or even denting the trophy. No, they love the Stanley Cup because it represents the hard work that went into their victory. I think God sees us as his Stanley Cup. Just call me the Sandy Cup. You might be the Cindy Cup or the Susie Cup. He's not worried about whether we're smudgeless and slobberless and stainless and dent-free. His joy over us doesn't come from our perceived perfections. No, He rejoices in us because we represent what it took to win the victory. We, We represent what went into winning us. Think about this. You and I are the prize in God's greatest achievement. 
We are the spoils of the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die on the cross? So that you and I could know God. So that we could be his children. We are the apple of his eye. We are the intent all along. We are why he died. Why he went to the cross. Why he sacrificed so much. You are the spoils of victory. For God our Father and his son Jesus Christ. This is why he loves us so much. This is why we're his Stanley Cup. Hey, 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 when I get to heaven, I fully expect this. I expect Jesus to pick me up in his strong hands and to skate me around the rink several times. I expect him to do that. And if he wants to kiss me and slobber on me, I'll enjoy every second of it. And he'll skate me around the rink to the cheers of the angels and to the cheers of the heavenly host and to the cheers of the Father who sent him and to the cheers of the Spirit who helped him. He's waiting right now to hold up his sandy cup and rejoice over me. And I believe he rejoices over each of us in exactly the same way. God is.